Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? <clears throat> Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And so Peter uh, answers them in, uh, at the end of that sermon that he gives. There's these verses. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God indeed. Now what is going on in this passage? What a wild passage. What a wild experience that would have been to have heard that wind, that violent wind, rattling the room they were in, those tongues of fire landing on their heads, hearing voices speak in languages, that you could understand that you knew those people who were speaking it did not know. It brings up all sorts of questions for us. How do we make sense of it? What does it mean? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, most of us would be able to say, well, he's one of the members of the Trinity, but that really doesn't help us because the Trinity is somewhat of a mystery of itself. When I first came to faith, I, I was uh, introduced to Jesus by a woman named Miriam. She was an Indian woman from Kerala, a, a state in India that was christened uh, or christened and was brought there uh, at least by, uh, by historical uh, story by the Apostle Thomas. And she was a mature believer in a very charismatic church that spoke in tongues and had a very experiential uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit. I, at the time, was living in New York. She was living in San Francisco. I would go over, and we met each other on a hang gliding hill. When I became a believer, I had to find a church, and I ended up in New York going to a very, very conservative 
church, at least in terms of the Holy Spirit. I went to a church where when they preached from a passage where the Holy Spirit did something that was spectacular or out of the ordinary, they just left it out. And I don't think they left it out because they don't believe or didn't believe that the Holy Spirit had power. I, I think they believed that the Holy Spirit, that, that he was active and alive. I just think they left it out because it was too hard to contextualize, too hard to preach on. And when I became a, uh, uh, started to be grow in my faith in the early years, I was torn between my West Coast, East Coast experience of the faith. And I, I asked my friend, my mature believer, I asked Miriam, I said, look, should we expect radical, powerful manifest, uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit like we see in uh, Acts 2? Or is the Holy Spirit the silent one of the Trinity? Uh, or is he the power we're lacking in our lives? What is going on with the Holy Spirit? Now, when I was, uh, this is over 20 years ago, and at that time, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church was, was a hot topic and a, and a big debate. It was in the days of John Wimber and John Stott, and they would argue those things out. And today, I don't think those are the big hot issues in the church. But I also don't think we have worked out how to we, we can coexist, we can tolerate, but we don't live together in community. We sort of have managed to fragment ourselves into smaller and smaller little groups of Christians that see the world the way we see the world. And I don't think this is a um, unique uh, problem, but you can see how when we do this, we see a manifestation of are both pride and judgment coming into our lives. For those who have a Holy Spirit experiential sort of relationship with God, the self-adulation pride position is, I'm more holy, I'm more loved, I'm more gifted, I'm a true believer, I'm a real Christian that those who don't have that experience. The judgment piece is just that. They haven't experienced God. They are lesser. They are not real Christians. And the worst case outworking of this is pushing your agenda by co-opting the Holy Spirit to it. The Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit said. When I was in this place, the Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit wasn't there. Using the co-opting of the Holy Spirit in judgment. And on the other side, in the Holy Spirit rational side, the pride, the self-adulation comes into the I'm not into the flashy spectacular. I'm grounded. I'm emotionally stable uh, Christian. And, the, of course, the judgment is the flip side of that, the manufactured uh, view of those uh, who are experiential. It's a manufactured emotional, a fake, a false holiness. And the worst-case agenda-driven piece of that sort of rational piece where the Holy Spirit is stripped out of that and the person who is the most intellectually impressive or makes the best argument carries the day. So... Of course, in any relationship, there is both the experiential and the rational. It's when the Holy Spirit comes out of those things and we are experiential or emotional without the Holy Spirit or we are rational without the Holy Spirit that those pieces come in. But the question comes here, without submission, 
those horrible distortions of those positions come up. But what is going on this, in this passage? How do we make sense of it? What does it mean? What does it mean for us as the church today? Are we supposed to be the power Christians enabled by the Holy Spirit to perform supernatural acts? Are we supposed to be rational Christians with the Holy Spirit working quietly within us? Is a church that regularly practices charismatic gifts running on emotion and temperament only? Is a church that does not practice charismatic gifts running on spiritual empty? What does Acts 2 have to say about this? What does this all mean? Well, the good news for us is, in fact, that this is the question that they ask in Acts 2 itself. Uh, the good news is that everybody who saw and heard what was going on also asked this question. We see that in verses 9 to 12. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, the Judeans, the Cappadocians, the Pontius, and those from Pontius and Asia, from Phrygia, from Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors of Rome, the Cretans, the Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues and we're amazed and perplexed and they ask each other, what does this all mean? Of course, this is the very first sermon of the church. Peter is doing the first sermon that's, in rec that's recorded in the church history. And we have to start by recognising that what's going on here is clearly a supernatural event. There's no question about that. This wind, this violent wind in the building is clearly audible to everybody that's sitting there. They are shocked and awed by it. The visible flames that come and land on people's heads are really there. They're all seeing it. It is a real and tangible supernatural event that's going on. They're speaking in languages, foreign languages that they don't know, that other people are understanding and, and this is what is, in fact, the most truly surprising piece about it. And we just read that uh, piece there where they, the amazed and perplexed, the people were speaking in their own tongues, they asked, what does this mean? Now, in North Point, we talk about these supernatural events, the ones that we read in the Gospels and any supernatural event that is associated with God as being a signpost and a foretaste, the signpost to Jesus and a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And people have said to me, well, I, I get it that Jesus healed and that's a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And that healing miracle proved who Jesus was. But surely he did it for compassion too. And of course, the answer to that is Jesus and God's compassion is a signpost to Jesus and a foretaste of the coming kingdom. But we should be looking for those miracles to be working in that context. You see that, in fact, Peter makes that point, and we didn't read it because the sermon is long, but in verse 22, which is the middle of the section of Peter's sermon, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. So the question then becomes, well, what is the foretaste and sign piece of this incredible experience of noise and light and speaking in languages that they can understand? Well, we cannot look at this text in isolation. In that long piece of the sermon before the summary that we read, 
Peter, first of all, uh, quotes from the prophet Joel and from the Psalms of David, making the point that this event at Pentecost is a monumental milestone in the history of the church. In, a, in effect, what's happening at Pentecost goes right back to Genesis. We go back to the Old Te Testament and we look at the covenant, the first covenant that God made uniquely in the world with his own people. It was with Abraham. And he set them apart and he told them that they would be a blessing to the other nations. He would make Abraham a nation, his people, and that they would be a blessing to other nations. And we can see that in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Most of you probably have it memorized. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's important to realize that before chapter 12 in Genesis comes chapter 11. Now, that's probably not a surprise to any of you who've got through uh, first grade math. But actually, it's what's in chapter 11, which is really important. See, right before the nation is called apart or the nation is formed and called apart to be God's people is the story of the Tower of Babel. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, the people of the earth, all the people of the earth get together and in a common language, they say, just like Adam and Eve did, we want to be our own God. We want to set the rules for ourselves. We don't want to be in submission to God. Let's build a monument to ourselves rather than be image bearers and worshippers of God. And God says, no, it does not work that way. And he cursed them and gave them a whole lot of different languages, and they couldn't communicate with each other. And so that curse caused the formation of all these nations. And then in chapter 12, Abraham is called out and a nation is formed. And then we get to Pentecost. In Acts 2, God fulfills the promise to Abraham's seed, to Jesus, with a blessing to the nations. He no longer calls the nation of Israel to be his people, but he calls the church to be made up of all nations. Just as circumcision is a marker of the Old Testament with the Israelites, circumcision of the heart demonstrated by baptism, uh, representing the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is the marker of the new capital C church. So we have this picture running through right back from the time of Genesis, God cursing the people who were trying to establish themselves as God, breaking them up into nations, calling one of those nations to be his people, but promising that that curse would be undone through the blessing to Abraham. And then in Acts 2, we see that promise fulfilled, where the church now includes not the nation of Israel, but all of these languages, and, they, and no longer is there confusion, but there is understanding running through what's being said uh, by the disciples to the people who are listening. And the destination, of course, the destination we see is Revelation 7. So let me read that to you, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this, I looked and before me was a great multitude. And, and Pastor Paulo was alluding to this in his opening remarks. 
And before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb, wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to God, sit on the throne, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we have this clear picture the curse, the promise of the undoing of the curse in 11 and 12, the coming of the Holy Spirit demonstrated and made manifest by the speaking of these languages that everyone could understand, bringing to the church a great unity, which we then see in Revelation 7. Peter's summation then in verses 36 uh, is quite simply, and is almost repeating what we read in 22, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then after summarizing the direction or the text of the message, he goes on to application. And his application is pretty clear. Repent and be baptized. Be baptized into covenant community. Be baptized into this big, wide, multi-ethnic, multi-language community into a new covenant that leads to that beautiful picture that we see in Revelation 70, that community there. So what happened at Pentecost was this. Pentecost is the reversal of the curse of Babel and the fulfillment of the, or the, of the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the nation. It is the formation of the church and it is the forward-looking promise of Revelation 7. And this is how it points to the coming kingdom. This is how it is a sign and a signpost. Like Peter, we should consider some application to this text. Remember the question I asked of Miriam, should we expect radical power manifestations of the Holy Spirit like this? Is the Holy Spirit the silent one of the Trinity or is the power we are lacking in our lives? I ask this to a charismatic woman, to a woman of mature faith, a strong believer. And her answer to me was very similar, in effect, to what Peter said. You're asking the wrong question, David. The Holy Spirit does not point to us. He points to Jesus. If you use your charismatic gifts to point to yourself instead of to Jesus and the kingdom of God, you're abusing your gifts. If you're using your reason gifts, to point to yourself instead of Jesus and the kingdom of God, you're abusing the kingdom, you're abusing your gifts. The Spirit builds the church. He unifies. He does not divide the church. And as a church, we can divide over many things. But this is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to be one hope when you were called. Our Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in this text, we get a clue, a cue of the universal work of the Spirit, which produces in us humble, gentle patience, a bearing of one another's burdens, of love, of kindness to one another. 
And as Paul says somewhere else in, in Corinthians, the fruit of the Spirit is a universal aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The gifts are not universal. The fruit points to the heart, the gifts do not, which does not mean that the charismatic gifts are not there, that there are not visions, that there are not miraculous signs happening. It means that not everybody is doing or engaged or involved in that, and it is not a marker of your faith. It is the, it is the fruit of the Spirit that is. Now, the application of Pentecost is, in fact, to fulfill the foretaste of unity and work towards a Rev 7 vision of the church. Now, later in summer, we're going to look deeper at what this Rev 7 vision is. But in today's position, in today's passage, I want you to see the foretaste and the, uh, the signpost is pointing away from uh, the divided and segmented and smaller and smaller pockets of believers who have more and more in common but less and less in common with other people and towards an experience of our faith which embraces those who we don't see or agree completely or experience completely the same things as. Now, we can divide over so many things, theology, culture, language, gift expression. The differences are, in fact, important, not because they're a problem, but because they paint a fuller picture of God. When I do marriage counseling, we do a module on finances. And I use this example because I know it well in my own marriage. Some people would call me reckless. I call myself generous. Some people would call my wife stingy. She would call herself frugal. Those two things in the right place do well. And because we're different and we come together and we have to wrestle through those differences, we find that relation sanctifying. We are forced in submission to the Holy Spirit under God to work out what's going on. Now, if we were both reckless or generous, or if we were both cheap or frugal, we would have aligned distortions and we wouldn't be rubbing against each other. We wouldn't be experiencing the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as easily. So in humble, gentle, patient, bearing of one another's love, if we listen to the Holy Spirit, if we are, not, if we are blind, not to, uh, uh, if, we, if we listen to what the Holy T Spirit tells us, not about what's wrong with the people that we are with, but what they are revealing that is wrong with us. If we come together like we should come together in marriage, if we come together to cherish and to love and to build up and to be uh, challenged by, then we experience a much bigger picture of God. We, instead of seeing a sketch outline of God, because we've limited our ability to see him to just our worldview of God, of Christianity, we start to see in full color, perhaps even a 3D model of who God is. Instead of listening to one instrument play, we listen to an orchestra. And what a joy it was to listen to so many people singing in that chorus. Imagine filling that out to a full-blown orchestra. Our experience is so much more when we add the different voices and the different experiences. But it's not easy. It is much easier for one guy to get up with a guitar and to sing. It is much easier to paint a sketch than it is to create a full-color 3D model. It 
takes work. It takes input, it takes being confronted, it takes being challenged, it takes being rubbed, and it takes being sanctified. Now today we have a foretaste. We are beginning to develop a Rev 7 friendship, in a sense, with Spring Rain, and we are so excited and glad that you are here. We have a Mandarin congregation and a English-speaking congregation, Spring Rain Church and North Point Church. As Pastor Polo said, a small foretaste of the coming kingdom, a signpost to the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, we need each other, and that is what Pentecost is really all about. The noise, the violent wind, the visible fire, a foretaste and a signpost to the coming kingdom. Pentecost is not a call either towards or away from the spectacular expression of the Holy Spirit. Regardless of expression, whether that be spectacular or not, it is a call to let the Holy Spirit really do its work deeply in our hearts. It is a call to humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another in love relationship. Pentecost is a call to new unity in the Spirit to a Rev 7 vision of the church. Our action then, like the action that the people who hear Peter's very first sermon, is one of repentance and a desire and a heart to participate in the big covenant community, in that Holy Spirit-baptized expression of the church, the big, wide, diverse, Rev 7, full-colored picture, 3D, symphony-sounding community of the church with a capital C. It is hard work. It is also Holy Spirit work. So it is also therefore good work. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us to be a Pentecost church, to be believers who look for the capital C church, who look to be challenged who look to be refined rather than to seek to be insular and isolated, to be small-minded and to gather around with those who think and feel and experience you the same way. Help us, Father, to be humble and gentle, not to go back to the Tower of Babel where we make idols of how we experience you, but rather come together because the Holy Spirit is not about us, it's about you. Help us to be people who seek your face. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.